Well, before getting into the message this week, I'd like to take a moment to ask a personal favor of everyone who is currently in a small group. Everyone who is currently in a small group. If you're not currently in a small group, then you don't have to listen to this announcement. In fact, you don't even have to pretend to listen. Although I will be circling back around to you in a couple of weeks to, to nag you about that. But you don't have to listen today. This is for everyone currently in a small group. You know well, Nativity has a vision for revival and renewal in the Catholic Church. And everything we do in one way or another is connected to that vision. Currently that vision is focused on welcoming a thousand new adults into small groups. In addition to the 1,500 already in groups, welcoming a thousand new adults into small groups this Lent. It's a big goal, it's a huge goal, but we have a great big huge God. In order to reach this great big huge goal, we have another great big huge goal. We're looking to raise a hundred new small group leaders to lead those thousand new adults in small groups. And that's where you come in. Small group leaders are simply hosts for groups. We make it really easy for you. We give you everything you need to succeed. This year, we're even giving you space to host your small group right here on our campus for the seven weeks of this series. If you're feeling like you're not qualified to lead, you're wrong. You don't have to be a churchy church person or a Bible scholar. We're asking you to simply serve as a host for a seven-week gathering in which people can be real about life and go deeper in their faith. If you're interested or would like to learn more, just text the word LEAD to the number on your screen. That's LEAD to the number on your screen, or stop by the Next Steps kiosk after Mass this weekend. Please consider joining us in an extraordinary Lenten experience. Okay. End of advertisement. Now everybody who wasn't listening can start listening again. We're in the second week of a new series for the new year. January is a time of new hopes and big dreams for the year ahead. And whatever those hopes and dreams are for you, we're all interested in a fresh start, especially given the last two years. We all are interested in a fresh start. This time of year can also be challenging as we settle into the long, cold winter ahead. And beyond all the obvious thieves of joy that are limited to this time of year, other thieves look to steal our joy in a more permanent way. And if we're not careful, they will. And we'll find ourselves living a joyless life. Many people do. The purpose of this series is not to depress you. It's to equip you to name those thieves and identify strategies to help us guard against them. Thieves of joy. Thieves of joy are things like rejection, disappointment, disrespect, anger, fear, criticism, fear of criticism. And the list could go on and on and on. Most all of us have these experiences and feel these emotions from time to time, and every time we do, they'll rob us of joy. Last week, as we introduced this series, we took some time to look 
And one thief, we called the biggest thief of all, we said that the person who gets in the way of my joy the most is me. We also discussed a working definition of joy for this series and noted that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is a feeling. It's the feeling of contentment. And because it's a feeling, it comes and it goes. Joy, at least in the sense we're talking about it for this series, isn't so much a feeling as an experience. We experience joy at a different level, another level, a spiritual level, at the level of our soul. We said we can anticipate, arrange, and control happiness. We can even manufacture and manipulate it. And in this sense, happiness is smaller than the sum total of who we are. Joy is an experience we enter into. And in that sense, it's much bigger than the sum total of who we are. And ultimately, it's about discovering our primary identity in Christ. Well, that was last week. This week, this week we want to look at another enemy, twin enemies really, that we let into our hearts, that get into our heads and steal our joy. And I'm speaking, of course, of worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. Worry is when we allow our minds to dwell on difficulties or troubles, current or anticipated, real or imagined. Anxiety is a feeling of nervousness or unease. Experiencing occasional worry and anxiety is just a normal part of life, and in fact, some situations warrant it. In some scenarios, you should be worried. You have every reason to be worried. On the other hand, anxiety in a more sustained, persistent, intense form can be a serious mental health concern. And if you've been diagnosed with anxiety disorder or are concerned that you might be, I pray that you get the help you need. The people I want to talk to today are all those people who worry more than they have to, who choose to be anxious as a go-to response. All the people who use worry and anxiety as the lens through which they process information. The writer Dorothy Parker was known for her oft-repeated quib. Anytime the phone rang or someone knocked at her front door, she would sigh and say, what fresh hell is this? Worry. Worry as the lens through which you receive and interpret information. When we worry like that, when we worry too much in our minds, it eventually creates anxiety in our heart. It's an uncomfortable way to live for sure. It can be demoralizing for ourselves and for those around us. It can even be exhausting. You know, in In this time, above any other time in our experience, when the future is so uncertain, it's so easy to worry. It's the easiest thing of all. We look at all the uncertainty and and fill in worst-case scenarios. As the supply chain is disrupted and you see empty shelves at the supermarket, you might be worried that you should be hoarding. 
as inflation soars, you might be worried that your paycheck can't keep up. As schools swing back and forth from online to in-person, you may be worried about your kids falling behind. As the mask mandates keep changing and the variants keep coming, you might be worried that you're going to get sick, or at this point, you're going to get sick again. As a political discourse descends into coarse and vicious conflict, you may be worried for the future of this country. Those are all obvious worries that we're all worried about. But then, there are others we author for ourselves and are all our own. Are my kids ever going to get along with each other? Why does my neighbor hate me? How many more miles can I get out of my car? Is that funny feeling I've been feeling recently something serious? What did she mean by that remark? There's plenty to worry about, that's for sure. Unfortunately, it's useless. And we know it's useless. And we do it anyway. Another author put it this way. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere. Worry is part of the human condition for sure. We can't avoid the experience altogether, but we can keep it from stealing our joy and dominating our life. And if you struggle with worry, congratulations. You picked the right day to come to church because we're going to look at a passage from Scripture that can help us choose joy over worry. And for purposes of transparency, allow me to acknowledge that this is, far and away, the greatest thief of joy in my life. So today, I'm preaching, first of all, perhaps mostly, to myself. We find the passage in question in the second chapter of John's Gospel. Here's what's going on. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Weddings were great and festive occasions in small Mideastern towns and villages in that time. The entire town would join in the celebration. Of course, for any of you who've actually planned a wedding, you know it can bring tremendous stress and tension in itself. Something could go wrong. That's what happened at this wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, how does this concern of yours affect me? My hour has not yet come. They ran out of wine. That could be a problem at a wedding, depending upon the culture. Certainly, it was in that culture. Besides slowing the party down, running out of wine would have been a major embarrassment for the host family, seen as a slight to their guests, a lack of hospitality. And hospitality in Jewish culture was and is incredibly important. It's Mary who notices the problem and brings it to the attention of Jesus. She brings the problem to him because she knows he can do something about it. Jesus responds in a way that at first seems curious. He calls his mother woman. That sounds like an insult. It seems disrespectful, but it was not. Instead, there are layers of meaning here, which we often find in St. John's highly symbolic gospel. 
And we could spend some time unpacking those layers. But let me just reference one. By calling his mother woman, Jesus is alluding to the third chapter of Genesis, where God is condemning the evil one. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God fills that promise through Mary, just as Eve was the portal through which sin and evil enter the world, Mary, the new Eve, will be the portal through which grace and mercy enter the world. And thus, her instruction, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. While this is not Mary's final appearance in the gospel, these are her final words. And they are words that echo through the centuries for us. John then shifts our attention to the solution to the problem. There were six stone water jars for Jewish washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. We know exactly what these jars were. They were huge stone urns that held 20 to 30 gallons of water each. And you know the story. He turns the water into wine. So how much water into wine was that? Well, if you do the math, it's about the equivalent of almost 400 bottles of wine. 400 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's impressive. But what does this story have to do with our worry and anxiety? Anything? Well, actually, everything. First of all, it shows us that God cares. God cares even about our smallest problems. Some people wait to pray, only going to God when they really have no other choice, when the problem is so big and out of control that they have to turn to him. They wait to go to God because they don't want to bother him with their problems. But we can learn from this story that whatever the issue, large or small, significant or otherwise, we can, we should turn to God because God cares. And I'd also like to mention here that this miracle, Jesus first, also teaches that not only does God care, but we have an advocate in Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, I know some of you grew up in the Protestant tradition and have questions about Mary's role in Catholic faith and worship, a role that has often been misrepresented or misunderstood by Catholics themselves. What we believe and all that we believe is that Mary can be an advocate for us. Can you go to, directly to Jesus with your prayer petitions and requests? Absolutely, positively. But hey, Sometimes it doesn't hurt to have his mama on your side. Second, this miracle can remind us that God is a God of provision. Think about it. 400 bottles of wine is a lot of provision. Many of our worries are based on not having enough of whatever for the future. Just as that wedding ran out of wine, we worry we'll run out of money, time, emotional energy, patience. 
We're limited in meeting our needs. We know that. We're acutely aware of that. We worry about that all the time. We're limited, but God is not. God has unlimited power to meet our needs in natural and supernatural ways. When he chooses to do so, he has unlimited power to meet our needs. But first, we've got to ask. Will we always get what we want when we want it? No, we already know that. But we have to keep asking. Third lesson, the setting of this miracle, as well as the miracle itself, are reminders that God really does want joy for us. Jesus performs his very first miracle and launches his public ministry where? At a wedding, the biggest kind of party available in the ancient world. It's a powerful sign of God's heart, of God's heart for us. Laughing, dancing, feasting, celebrating, spending time with friends, even resting and relaxing can be symbolic of the joy-filled life God has in mind for us. But it's a constant work in progress. So if you find yourself worrying about work life or school life because it's starting to feel overwhelming, it's an entirely spiritually healthy thing to do, to step away, to walk away from the stress. Maybe instead spend some playtime with your kids or grandkids or take a long walk with your dog. If you find yourself worrying about your health, invite some friends over, make an evening of it, have a party. Celebrating and feasting in the midst of a problem tells our problem that it is not master of our soul, that God is bigger. If you're worried about being lonely or being alone, sign up to join one of our local missions. Some of our mission partners can powerfully put in proper perspective your worries. Above all, first of all, and last of all, bring your worries and anxiety to your daily quiet time, to your daily prayer time. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul said it beautifully and best. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. Did you know, did you know that it is virtually impossible to worry and pray at the same time? 